When Michael Hallett decided that he wanted to come back to the family farm, he remembers fondly what his father said. He kind of said, what, um, what are you going to do here? And I, I kind of went back on my heels and said, um, well, I, I'm a Hallett, right? Hallett Farms, you know, I don't know, I'll do, I'll do something. Turns out he's contributed quite a bit to the family operation. Michael is our guest today on the American Agriculture's Young Farmer Podcast. I'm Chris Torres. Thanks for listening. Michael is a fifth generation of his family to run the farm. It's changed quite a bit from when it started in the late 1800s, from just 13 acres and two cows to more than 4,000 acres of crops and a vertically integrated grain operation. We started our conversation by talking about the history of the farm. And it looks like here, and I was just doing some some background on you before before today's phone call, and you are the fifth generation at Howlett Farms. Um, tell me a little bit about the business. Yeah, so we uh, we started the business back in, in 1880. Uh, it was my great-great-great-grandfather uh, that uh, came over from England and, and started farming. He had 13 acres and two milk cows, and uh, we started in production agriculture and, and we have stayed in production agriculture ever since. It always uh, seems to, to change and, and look a little different and we bob and weave with the changing markets. Um, and we, uh, we continue to, to change our operation to make sure we, we keep up with the times and, and uh, maintain a legacy that is viable going forward. So we, uh, we've been in many different aspects of production agriculture from raising potatoes to vegetables. Um, we had livestock and, and, uh, then most recently over the last two decades, we, uh, we made a, a pretty major shift in our business model because we saw one of the vegetable, the contract vegetable production that, that started to go away. Uh, and, uh, we, we pivoted from doing a lot of custom work for, for local farms uh, which was harvesting and planting and, and contract vegetables. Uh, and we, we pivoted more towards the grain industry and then began to vertically integrate throughout the supply chain in the, uh, the grain production side of things. So uh, that entailed the, the starting of a, a trucking company and we maintain our own fleet of trucks and grain handling facility, a storage and drying facility. And, and then that led way to, uh, to grain merchandising. So now we, we buy from the local producers and connect them with, with markets all across the Northeast to give them better access to, uh, to markets that they may not, may not be able to reach in their, uh, in, in their marketing sphere. It's fascinating how you started, how, how the family farm started with only 13 acres and two milk cows, and it's grown to how many acres do you farm now? We, we farm uh, just shy of 4,000 acres. Uh, we raise uh, all the easy stuff, corn, soybeans, and wheat, um, and uh, that is still a, a major part of our of our lives and of our business is is uh, staying connected to agriculture via production agriculture and farming and being in touch with what the farming community needs, uh, the 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 challenges and the the prosperity that 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 we see in in uh, in the agricultural world. It goes in cycles, as we all know. And uh, us being that connected to the land and, and to the agricultural economy allows us to really keep a close pulse uh, on everything that's going on. Who was really who was really the the person I guess responsible for for shifting the business into more of a vertic- more of a vertically integrated farm business? 
so that would have been my grandfather and my my father Bruce. Um, okay. And and we had a a very um, a, a very strong and, and very successful vegetable business in the early 1990s. We were in the region, one of the always one of the top producers and, and hitting uh, very good numbers. And, and uh, it, it came to a point where we realized my, my grandpa Eugene and, and my father Bruce realized, Hey, we, we've got to, we've got to make a little bit of a change here. Things are going really, really well right now. Um, but, over the horizon, there there are some threats to to uh, our current model, and and that's when we started to shift uh, the production side more towards grain, and we started building the infrastructure to to facilitate that. Another major shift did come, uh, and when when I when I started looking to come back to to the business, um, you know, my dad and I were were visiting about it, and. and he, and I said, well, you know, I'm ready to, to come back. And I was getting ready to graduate from, from college. And he, he kind of said, what, um, what are you going to do here? And I, I kind of went back on my heels and said, well, um, well I, I, I'm a outlet, right? Outlet farms, you know, I don't know. I'll do, I'll do something. And, uh, and he said, well, no, you, you've got to contribute something to our business. And, and we just can't have people joining just for the sake of joining what, what are you going to add and that's when I really looked at different ways that we could utilize the infrastructure that we had and and we we kind of uh, evolved into that the buying and selling the, the grain trading and um, and merchandising that we we currently do with with multiple facilities uh, and and also vertically integrating uh, again into the the feed manufacturing business so in in 2000 uh, 13 is when I returned home from, uh, I was working in Chicago. I returned home from trading futures and options at the board of trade and, and looked at that model and said, we, we don't just have to do custom storage and custom drying or, or custom trucking. Let's, let's go out on a limb here and, uh, and, and do some connecting of supply and demand and, and, uh, see if we can do some trading. And, and that's where, uh, that other major shift really, uh, really took place. So, did you actually spend time at the pits out there in Chicago? So, I was uh, when I when I joined the, the the CME. That was right when we were shifting from the pits to everything being traded on the screen. So, by the time I got there in uh, in 2010, there was only a handful of people still down in the pits. But I worked uh, at a brokerage house with a lot of uh, old pit traders and, and heard. A lot of the, the the wild stories of, of all the all the crazy things that that would happen at the uh, the Chicago Board of Trade, and uh, um, there was a lot of nostalgia there, and you know there, there was a lot of pushback. People saying, "Oh, this this computerized trading is is never going to work, and there's no way we're going to get rid of the pit." And uh, you know that they closed uh, about a year and a half after that, and it's been uh, moving forward ever since. But it uh, heard a lot of stories about it. And I visited down there. I would spend time down there talking to guys, but never the the thrill of the the, the 80s when it was in its heyday of, of, of trading on the pit. What company were you working for out there? I was working for uh, Top Third Ag Marketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a, a division of uh, Global Asset Advisors, and they do all sorts of advising across the, the commodity spectrum. Uh, they, they advise speculators. They advise producers. Uh, I was working with, uh, all sorts of different producers across the country, 
guys raising hogs, cattle, cotton, rice, corn, soybeans, wheat, working with them to develop a risk management plan that would fit their operation instead of just riding the, the highs and the lows of the grain market and being a, a price taker when you need to turn your 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 product into cash, we, we look to take advantage of some of those those highs and lows. And it, it was a wild time because back in 2010 to 2012 was really when we uh, when we went off the flywheel uh, and saw the market get to seven fifty corn and, and seventeen forty dollars soybeans. Sure. What, what's known as a super cycle, the super the commodity right. super cycle, or one of them at least. Um, That's right. Yeah, my, my friend David Cole um, is talks about that. You know who David Cole is, I'm sure. I absolutely do. And, and uh, he I, talks I, about I, that quite a bit. <laughs> yes, I, I love listening to David. You can listen to the same spiel two or three times and every time glean a, a new piece of information or a new insight on how to, to look at your business differently. Absolutely. So um, we're going a little bit all over the place here, but I'm curious, where did you go to, where did you go to college? Went to the University of Illinois. Mm-hmm. Um, so grew up in, in, in Western New York, and I, I knew I wanted to get out and see large-scale production agriculture. Um, I wanted to really see the, the heart of the, the commodity industry. And uh, everyone always asked me, why, why didn't you go to Cornell? Cornell's right, right in your backyard. And Cornell has a very strong animal science or dairy program, and, and I knew numbers were more my thing, not animals. And, and uh, so that's, that's why I, I engaged in the, uh, um, the commodity management program at, uh, at the University of Illinois, and great experience there. Well, that's great. When my boss hears this, she's going to be very, very pleased to know she is also an Illini uh, All right. alumni, so she's going to be very, very happy to hear that I'm interviewing Illini. <laughs> All right, it's, it's uh, great, great to be alive. Um, so why don't we go ahead and fast forward from there back to back to when you actually came back to the farm? And uh, was that right about the time when when Pat O'Brien Grain and, and Feed came into came into the business as well? So Pat O'Brien Grain and Feed is is a little more recent. Um, we ended up purchasing that at uh, um, in August of 2019. So. Um, we had, I had been back and we had been really evolving our, our grain merchandising model. And, and for the first few years, we really relied on a lot of, of brokers to be in the middle of, of all of our dealings. And, you know, I kind of, I just got a little frustrated when, when I would always have to call out to Kansas city or call out to Omaha and, and talk with someone a couple thousand miles away to deliver grain for our contract to a, to a local end user. Um, and we, we did a lot with the local ethanol plants, so a lot with the local feed mills. And uh, so we started to, to drive those direct connections and, and looking at things more as a, a strategic partnership with end users and with producers. And, and we, we quickly kind of realized we need to have a, we need to structure our business so we can control our own destiny. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's where we started looking to be our own end user. Um, and the dairy market in our area is, is very strong. It's a, a very solid, uh, growing uh, segment of, of agriculture in Western New York. And, mm-hmm. and we knew that if we were going to thrive in the future, we wanted to be close to, the ultimate end users, which which is the, the the dairy farm, the cows around here. 
Sure. And, and, and that's we talk how we about when we talk about dairy farms for people who don't know or for people who are listening outside of New York, that really is your area in Livingston County and Wyoming County neighboring is really the heart of the state's dairy industry now. I mean, you're talking about very large, very large herds. Yes, absolutely. Um, and we've seen a little bit more consolidation over the last uh, few years with, with the, uh, the tough dairy marketing and, and tough dairy economy. So we've seen more consolidation. Uh, but you know, most herds around here are anywhere from a uh, thousand cow dairy farm to a uh, seven thousand cow dairy farm, and those are those are all family owned or, or uh, um, multiple families own them. It's, it's not like it's a, a consolidated corporate farming structure. It's it's still family farms, but they have uh, they have grown in size. So when you came back to the farm, Michael. You had these ideas about getting into grain merchandising and and that sort of thing. Did that take some convincing for your father and for the other um, people who are managing the farm? I mean, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, it, it did. I mean, it took a lot of a lot of discussions and, and planning, and and we as a as a family and and as an organization, we've always tried to remain extremely agile. So when we when we see an opportunity or or something that we can pursue, we try and vet it and, and see what all the, the possibilities are. And, and that was one of the things that, that we looked at. We, we said, if we're going to develop these relationships with, with nearby farms or, or end users, we really need to, to develop this and, um, and take a look at it, how it's going to affect us long term. And we had grown to a point where a lot of it was organic growth where we just kept seeing new customers and uh, new opportunities coming and, and my dad had, had really grown the business just out of his his will to grow his his ability to uh, continue pursuing more and, and we got to a point where the farm was big enough the grain business was was large enough it was it was just too much to try and and, and run all from his desk and and he he kind of gave me the reins and he said Hey, this is this is a huge opportunity. This is this is how we have been doing it. But I know there's a lot more. If if you want to take this and run with it, feel free. I, I'm I'm behind you all the way. And and he gave me incredible support. He gave me incredible advice. Uh, and and we were really able to to grow it together. But he he, he let me run. He gave me enough enough rope to let me get out there and, and try out new things uh, to to. Uh, relish my successes and learn from my failures. It, it was a really great learning experience, but he, he gave me a lot of a lot of room to grow. Well, what made New York a really? What do you think made your area, where you actually farm in Western New York, a good area to actually pursue this type of business model? Well, it's New York agriculture is it's a little bit different. The, the mentality is is not like it is out in the Midwest where the uh, Growth is, is the only uh, objective. I, I think there's there's more limits to organizations and, and how they can grow. We don't have unlimited arable farmland. Uh, we, we, we aren't as close to our neighbors and, and, and fighting over ground. We, we see lower costs of production. And um, so it's just, it's not as, it's not as crowded. Mm -hmm. And New York, from the get-go, is, is a corn deficit state. So we, we use more corn than we produce, and it's always a challenge to connect what is typically a seasonal supply to the, the steady use, the steady demand of, of end-use customers. So when we, when we saw that opportunity, more solidified demand from cows that 
are going to eat every day. Um, and we don't see the demand come and go as quickly as, say, an ethanol plant idling or an export program getting shut down. You know, we saw the, the, the consistency in demand uh, as, a, as a great opportunity to try and pursue. And you're involved in a lot of things. You're, you're involved in exports, ethanol plants, feed mills, flour mills, pet food plants, um, cattle feeders, of course, poultry farms, yeah. distillers. You know, that's where a lot of your grains actually go to. Um, you know, out of, out of those that I just, or maybe another one that you can just, that, that maybe I missed, but out of those that I just said, what's, your big, what's the biggest market for grain that you actually market there? So the, the, the biggest consumer of grain locally is, is our local ethanol plant. Um, we've got an ethanol plant that is uh, about well, 52 miles away from our, our Avon location. Uh, so they are the, the largest consumer as an individual customer, but the, the end use of cow feed is a much larger um, use of corn. But that gets divvied up uh, amongst going direct to, direct to individual farms or going to 10 to 15 other feed mills that may be in the area. Um, and then, you know, ultimately the, the, the distillers, they end up at as, as cow feed as well. So um, we, uh, we do have a lot of different opportunities. And, and with the climate of New York and how regional our weather patterns are, there's, there's a lot of opportunity to, uh, to get, get a supply to, to where it needs to be within, within New York or the Northeast. It's good to be diversified, though, and you certainly are diversified. That that is right. Yeah, that's correct. We we try and stay uh, stay in front of, of a lot of different end users with with offers. Uh, you you never know what you never know what's going to change in the marketplace, and you don't want to hang your hat on uh, on just one horse. You you want to make sure you you have a lot of different uh, a lot of different horses in the race. We'll talk about more end uses, more opportunities for end uses in a moment, Mike. But um, you know, I'm kind of curious between all of your facilities. Um, how much grain do you actually handle in a given year between your corn, soybeans, and wheat? So we'll handle, uh, this past year we handled 18.4 million bushels uh, in total, corn, soybeans, uh, wheat, and then we also have, we do a little bit of oats and rye and um, small grains as well. And then on the, the feed side of the business, we'll handle feed ingredients like soy meal or cotton seed, uh, chocolate feed, oat hulls, whatever, whatever, uh, whatever fits in the diet. Uh, at the right price point is uh, is what will originate for for our end use customers, which which are dairy farms on sure. the feed side. And all that input is that coming from just New York farms, or are you actually taking in feed from from farms in other states? Yeah, we're taking in, in feed from other states. Um, it's all about freight and, and leveraging our freight network to get things moved uh, in an efficient manner. Uh, but they they come from mostly in the mostly across the. Um, the Northeast, East Coast, or, or the Northeast. But uh, yeah, we, we pull from several different states on the feed ingredient side. I'd like to get back from. I'd like to get back to end uses, and you know, of course, you know, it sounds like you're you're a really forward thinking type of person. That's a great thing. You know, you have a progressive attitude about about business. You know, where do you see where do you see some more opportunities for for end uses for for the products, whether it be corn, soybeans, wheat, or, or something else? Well, I, I think that the, the Consumers' tastes are are changing at an unprecedented pace. You know, we've we've seen all sorts of impacts that the on whether it's organic grain or organic food in the grocery stores, gluten free, um, 
Super Bowl ad for Oatly, the oat milk, uh, that that certainly is is looking to influence consumer tastes on uh, on a large scale. And you know, I, I think at the at the end of the day, when we when we look at when we look at grain and we look at what it's there to do, I, I do think it ends up being uh, a very efficient feed ingredient. I I worry about uh, long term with with how people are pushing towards uh, electronic vehicle, electric vehicles, or, um, you know, the, the climate change. And, and if they, if they truly pursue that, what that can mean for the, the combustion engine over time. So, so we are always looking to diversify our way to, to use our own products to, to, to make feed and stay close to that, that, that dairy industry. Sure. You haven't had a conversation with Elon Musk as of yet? <laughs> I haven't yet. Um, I tweeted at him a few times, but he hasn't replied. So. <laughs> um, you know, it's, 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 and, and that's, that's great. Um, I'm just kind of curious um, in terms of, in terms of what's happening right now in the markets, obviously you're seeing, um, you know, you're seeing corn and soybeans, the prices for corn and soybeans are, are, are heading up. Um, you know, um, your, our friend David Cole said that, um, he had said last week in a call that this was the start of another, um, I guess you can say super cycle, commodity super cycle. Um, although he, he sort of, um, he sort of is not convinced it's going to last as long as the last one. What do you see out there in terms of, uh, in, in terms of the market right now? And, uh, you know, how do you interpret what's going on? Yeah, I, I think the, the big thing that's different about the rally that we have seen, this year, it's not a uh, short supply-induced rally. It's not because we had a 100-year drought or massive flooding or anything like that. It's a demand-driven rally. And typically, demand-driven rallies are stronger. They're harder to break. And we have seen that several times over the last few months where we see a dip in the market and buyers look at it as a buying opportunity they come in, they buy it up, and we go back higher than than what we were before. And I I, I see the the shift where China has a, a huge demand that they are they're they're driving their hog herd forward. They're trying to add head. They're trying to increase the size of their hog herd. Uh, they're they're coming out of COVID. They they have a lot of different demand that has to be met and has to come in at a in a short period of time there is no shorter cycle for agriculture we've we have to work on our seasonal uh production and our harvest so with with south america essentially running out of product late in the summer they've had to rely on the u.s mm -hmm. and that has given us a a, a great outlet and a, a, an entry back into china because when when we were having uh, the the back and forth over some of the tariffs that we started to see that that divide widen, and when they went essentially all to South America, they pulled so much product out, and then had to come back to the U.S. to fill in once South America was was depleted. Sure. And and I, I see this as uh, it could be setting up a a another big rally if we get out to the spring and don't have a good planting and growing season. Sure. It's typically the, the second year of these rallies that, that really can get out of control if we then have any any threats to production in the United States. So the acreage battle is, is going to heat up. We're, we're going to see 
corn and soybeans really start to fight for acres. Uh, they're going to have to pull acres out of CRP or, or out of uh, other, other commodities. And we're going to need ever, every acre to produce at a high level, at least trend line, to get us out of this, this demand dilemma that we have. And price is there to, to ration that, that demand. Sure. Long term, though, however, the cure for high prices is high prices. Is high prices, that's right. <laughs> and, and ultimately, you know, we will go back towards the cost of production. We're in a commodity-based business. Um, and over time, not saying over the next one year or two years, over time, over a long stretch, we will average out close to the, the cost of production. And, and those are the farms that can survive those those downtimes is when they're able to tighten their belt, reduce their cost of production below what their market price is and, and live on those slim margins. Because no matter how good it gets today or the next 12 months or the next 24 months, it will get tight again. That's that's how the, the commodity business works. It gets too high and then it gets too low. Sure. But as of right now, though, it's a good market, and uh, you know what, what sort of in terms of in terms of forward contracting, in terms of of risk management and all that sort of thing, um, you know, what, what sort of advice can you actually give a farmer out there looking ahead right now? I'm already looking ahead to the harvest. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we haven't even planted any corn and soybeans in the ground, but I'm already looking ahead to the harvest and actually, you know, possibly putting a hedge in or, or buying a contract to really take advantage of those good prices and all that sort of thing. You know, when the prices are this high, what sort of advice do you give farmers? You know, I'm, I'm sure you probably are in contact with some of them who ask, you know, what should I do in terms of, you know, forward contracting and all that sort of thing to take advantage of these good prices? Yeah. And, and, and I always tell, I always preface every call that I, I have with the producer is I, I don't know where the market is going. I don't know where the Chicago board of trading is. Uh, where it's going going to be? If if uh, if I did, I, I wouldn't be wearing uh, leaky muck boots and have cold feet at the moment. <laughs> it, it, the the market is is going to behave however it wants to behave, and that typically is at the um, it's at the risk of of producers. So if there is a good price on the table. You don't have to sell 100% of your production, but what you need to do is look where your risk is. And if you're a producer and you haven't sold any bushels for new crop, your risk is entirely on the downside. If the market goes down from where we are here today and doesn't go up, your operation is absorbing that loss. Mm -hmm. So take a little bit off of the table layer in sales if we're at the the high end of the trading range look to make a sale it can be a five percent of your production or two percent it doesn't have to be big blocks where you're swinging for the fences three or four times per year you can break it up and sell um 10 or 20 times per year and layer in those sales once you get to a, a place where you you've sold some your risk then is split up. Your risk is not entirely that the market goes down. You have risk that, okay, if the market goes up, I, I might have sold too early, but I have more bushels to sell. And if you if you break up that risk a little bit, then, and the market does go higher, you can say, good thing I've got more bushels to sell, I'm going to sell into this rally again. If the market then goes down from there, you can say, 
boy, good thing I sold some bushels. I'm going to have to sell some at a lower price, but I've got my, my risk knocked out on, on this segment of bushels. So sure. you, you, you gotta, you gotta put yourself in a win-win situation. Uh, and everybody's capable of doing that. You, you can't ride the emotions of the, the grain markets there. It's exhausting and it will beat you every time because you get, you get excited when the market's going higher and then you get, you get uh, beat up on it when the market's going, going lower. Sure. And it's hard to pull the trigger because people don't like selling on an up day because they think if it's up a nickel today, it's going to be up tomorrow. I'll sell it tomorrow. However, when they come in and the market's down a nickel, they say, oof, I can't sell today. The market is, is down. Uh, I got to wait till it goes back up. So you, you got to look at where you sit, where your risk is, and don't be afraid to pull the trigger. Great advice, Mike. Um, talking about some, talking about some, some, some hard hitting stuff there. Um, but why don't we, why don't we turn into some lighter stuff? Um, okay. you know, so you have children. How many kids do you yeah. have? I have two boys. I, I've got a, uh, a two year old and a, a four month old boy, Benjamin and Henry and a beautiful wife, Carly that I met out in Chicago. She was a, a city girl born and raised. And, um, when I was out in Chicago working there, we, started dating and and uh I, I told her i said you know we're i know we're getting serious and i just want to let you know i i do have a a family operation in in new york and i'm, I'm gonna be moving back there and she said boy that's okay i love new york city and i said well Avalon, new york is not quite new york city but, <laughs> but she she loves it here and uh um, I've converted her to a, a farm girl. Did you tell her that it's close to Buffalo? I, I did. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, she said, "Isn't that where they get all that snow?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, it, it sure is." <laughs> That's awesome. When, when when did you guys get married? Got married in uh, 2015. Oh, wonderful! Uh, so we're yeah, yeah. And my family has a, a an old Wells barn, so we got we got married in a, a gorgeous cathedral ceiling Wells barn and. Um, brought a lot of my friends from Chicago out to the farm and showed him, I said, here, here, here guys, this is what a soybean looks like. And he said, oh, I know what that was. So it's been a, been a great experience. That's awesome. Um, you know, so you won the next gen farmer award. Congratulations, by the way. Um, you know, you're, you're, what, what does the future hold for you and what does the future hold for the business? I mean, obviously, your your um, your father is still involved in the business as the president. Am I correct? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So I, I'm assuming that you'd be the next in line to take over at some point. Yeah, and and we we kind of split up our duties. So um, he he oversees certain aspects of the business, and and I, I I keep a close watch on other aspects, and and we collaborate all the time, and we we kick ideas back and forth, and say, hey, this is going on. What do you think on this? So we we truly approach it. Um, as, as a two-pronged attack and, and try and let our minds work together and, and create together. As far as the future, I want to make sure we're able to remain agile. You know, I, I, I look at our business a little bit different than how a lot of other companies that we compete with look at merchandising or agriculture or the grain business. We don't look at trying to hit specific numbers in, in 30 days. We, we look at the relationships that we have as a customer lifetime value. 
you know, I'm, I'm going to be living here the rest of my life and, and working with my neighbors for the rest of my life. So we need to make sure we, we work together on things. I feel that I have a horizon of, of 50 years. You know, I'm making plans to, to try and set up our business and pursue success over the next 50 years. I don't want to be working for the next 50 years, but I want to have a, a business and organization that my sons can come into or my family can come into and feel they have been set up for success, get their feet underneath them, and then they too can hit the ground running. What's the early word on those boys? You think they're going to be farmers? Well, um, yes. I live across <laughs> the street from the farm, and my one boy, he uh, stands at the window all day, every day, and uh, hollers to my to my wife, Mama, truck, Mama, truck. And uh, when, he, when he goes backwards, he, he beeps. Uh, when, he, when he stops, he, uh, he makes the sound of, of air brakes. Um, and uh, he, he loves uh, trucks, tractors, and trains. So I think he's... Uh, He's into it. That that's for sure. Uh, sure. Benjamin, he uh, he's he's too busy watching his brother to figure out when he could be snapped next to really care about tractors yet. But we're getting there. <laughs> now, you've been pretty successful, and congratulations on all your success. Um, but you know, I, I think I think one thing that that I'd like to ask you as as sort of like the closing question, my last question would be, you know, obviously, um, it's a tough business. Farming is not an easy business for anybody getting into it, um, you know, and, uh, and and recruiting young people to get into the business to be the next generation. Um, you know, I can only assume that it's that, that it's very hard for, for some, maybe not all, but maybe for some. But for but for people who are who are um, who are sort of on the fence about about making a career in agriculture, um, you've been a success at it. You know what, what? What what kind of advice would you give them? And what do you think is the the secret to being successful in this in this business? You you truly have to understand agriculture and be passionate about it. You have to have a passion for what you do, because at the end of the day, every farmer out there that that works an acre of ground, every every truck driver out there that that hauls around grain or milk, they they are helping the American people and people all around the world. The, the world relies on farmers to eat, and every single person needs to eat. So you have to understand that we're not just out here doing a little thing. We're not building a widget that may go out of style in six months or a year. We are feeding the world. And if you can be passionate about others and about agriculture, you'll be successful. But it's, it's important to, to understand that everybody on our team at Hollywood Farms, everything that they do allows us to be successful, allows us to keep trucks moving, grain to be delivered, cows eating, milk produced, and kids consuming milk with their with their school bunches. It, it's it's a simple it's a simple model that that we're involved in. It's step by step to get food into people's mouths, and at the end of the day, that's the most important thing to us is making safe, reliable food for everybody to enjoy. Not just our families, not just the people that are, are local to us. It's for the whole world to be able to, to enjoy that, that self, safe, healthy, reliable food source. Well, that's very inspiring to hear during this time of, of a lot of stress on a lot of people. And, uh, you know, and, and you're definitely 100% right. And I thank you, Mike, for joining me on the podcast Good luck to you. Yeah, good luck to you, and I hope everything turns out well. And 
if I'm around Western New York, uh, hopefully in a couple months I will be with with going up yeah. to New York Farm Show. Maybe I'll stop up for a visit or something. Yeah. So Feel free I to stop it. in. That would be great. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. And thanks to Michael Hallett for being a guest on this week's podcast. I'm Chris Torres. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.